Hello and welcome to episode number 233 of the Armin Show podcast. On this episode, we have the author of this book right here, The Goodness Paradox, The Strange Relationship Between Virtue and Violence in Human Evolution, Dr. Richard Rangham. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. This is a wonderful thing. Now, I always like to check in the first thought, what is it about the material in the book that you connect with based on your personality that caused you to write it in the first place? Based on my personality? Mm-hmm. Like what about you lends itself to going into this category versus maybe like astronomy or something? Um, well, I've always loved nature. I mm-hmm. like being outside. Um, and um, uh, this is an opportunity to uh, to get to grips with you know one of the most fascinating questions about nature, which is uh, how humans evolved in in reality. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the studies in the book are with chimps. There's examples with foxes, all kinds of different animals. Is most of the research that can be done from animals, is there not so much that can be done with humans because you'd have to like manage them in some way and it wouldn't really work? Yeah, of course, you can't do experiments with humans of the type that you can do with, with animals. Um, uh, organizing social behavior of certain kinds or doing something. I mean, the critical thing with um, animals, I guess, uh, in terms of the experiments, is understanding what the effect is of uh, undergoing artificial selection for reduced aggression. And you can't do breeding experiments with humans, even though, as I tell the story in the book, there was kind of an effort by the 18th century Prussian leader uh, uh, King uh, Frederick uh, to do that, but um, uh, but you really can't with humans. So so we rely on on animals to to tell us something about the way biology works. Mm-hmm. Now for these chimpanzee studies, you founded the Kibali Chimpanzee Project in 1987. You have worked with chimpanzees for many years. Why specifically them? Are they the most related to us? And what has been your experience with them? Well, uh, in 1987. Uh, it had just been discovered that uh, chimpanzees and humans have an extraordinary relationship. And the extraordinary relationship is this, that uh, if you compare chimps and gorillas and humans, then uh, the obvious expectation is that gorillas are going to be uh, more closely related to chimpanzees than humans are. And that's obvious because uh, they are big, black, hairy things that live in the African forests and eat fruits and leaves, and they walk on their knuckles, and they have a similar sort of body shape. And basically, a gorilla looks just like a big chimpanzee. Mm-hmm. Well, it turned out in 1984 that instead of that being true, instead of gorillas being closely related to more closely related to chimpanzees than humans are, Actually, it turns out that humans are more closely related to chimpanzees than gorillas are. And uh, so what on earth does that mean? Well, it means that the common ancestor of chimps and gorillas, sorry, the common ancestor of chimps and humans uh, lived more recently than either of their common ancestor with gorillas. And what that means is that assuming that chimps and gorillas are similar to each other because of their close evolutionary relationship. That means that the thing that gave rise to humans, which we know from genetic data happened something like seven, eight, eight million years ago, that thing was very much like a chimp or a gorilla. And if it was 
bigger, it would have been more like a gorilla. If it was smaller, it was more like a chimp. And we know from the fossil evidence that very shortly after the separation of chimps and humans uh, in terms of the ancestry, uh, you had a pretty small species. So that suggests that we had a very chimpanzee-like ancestor. And so that's why it's so amazing to go into the wild and and live with chimpanzees, as I've done for for uh, you know years at a time sometimes. And uh, you feel as if you're in a time machine because basically you're you're living with a species that is um, fairly similar to the one that gave rise to us uh, six, seven, eight million years ago. So that hmm. makes just you know it's just so fascinating to see know understand everything about them and and then think about how you get from a, a chimpanzee-like ancestor to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Now, also, you teach biological anthropology at Harvard University. Uh, have you ever taken some of your class individuals to uh, where you do the chimpanzee project? Yeah. Like, check it out. You do? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've, we've taken small groups of, uh, of Harvard students uh, into to Uganda. Uh, mostly what we do is uh, encourage students who are juniors uh, to do their senior honor thesis research with us. So uh, you know, two or three students a year uh, do that sort of thing. They very rarely work with the chimps themselves because to work with the chimps, it takes you quite a long time to get to the point where you can really do any research because you have to learn the forest and you have to learn the individual chimps and, and so on. So for most behavioral work, you have to be a graduate student who is able to devote a year or more to being there. But undergraduates can do uh, things with uh, feeding behavior and um, health and uh, you know, some of the sort of less social behavioral things. Ah. Mm -hmm. Did you do any of that in your time at University of Cambridge or before when you were at Oxford? I did my PhD at, at Cambridge. Mm -hmm. and, and while I was there, I... I spent um, uh, two and a half years uh, in Tanzania working with Jane Goodall uh, on her chimpanzee population. Mm. This is yeah. wonderful. Now, I want to get into some of the material in the book because the things I connect with mostly is I really like to look at the impact of aggression on people. Um, they become more docile, the neurotransmitter effects. I like how you discussed a lot of the how things are generated. The what was it? The neural circuit. That one I have written down elsewhere. But how um, you can actually see in the development of the jaw and the um, forehead whether the individual ended up more in the docile or aggressive range. So I kind of like that. There's some actual physical features that connect with the internal representation of their uh, docility. I like that part. Now. You talk about two types of aggression that exist, proactive and reactive. Reactive is more like a response, and humans are low on reactive and high on proactive aggression. Uh, what is the most common type of aggression among most animals? Um, so these two types, proactive and reactive, um, they've been separated in people's minds for, for several decades, in, if you're a biologist or a psychologist, but not so much if you're an anthropologist. And... Um, in animals, it's quite clear that the uh, majority of aggression is reactive. It's where you have, particularly males, 
who are confronted with a threat to their status or a threat to their ability to uh, get resources or uh, keep a female, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, it turns into a fight. So this is something that happens um, you know, fairly spontaneously uh, over the short term. It's associated with uh, intense arousal, uh, physiological arousal uh, and emotion. It's associated with uh, very often a rise in testosterone uh, as they start fighting and, and uh, during the fight. Um, and uh, is in some animals the only kind of aggression but there are also many animals that have proactive aggression, which is the more deliberate, less emotional, um, premeditated type, where they are sort of acting more like a hunter, almost, uh, stalking another individual in order to impose deliberate harm, as opposed to what's happening, reactive aggression, where they're just trying to get rid of the threat. And if you can just persuade someone to go away, then you don't have to go and, and leap on them and, and damage them. It's just a question of getting rid of them, whereas proactive aggression is very often deliberate attempts to uh, to damage and kill. Mm -hmm. One is more like on the offense, one is more defensive, one is more avoidant, and one is more causing upon the world, in a way. Yes, and, and in the law, you know, one is uh, proactive is equivalent to uh, first-degree murder, and uh, reactive is equivalent to second-degree murder. Mm. That's a good way to separate them. And then... When we think about these different types of aggression, how do they connect with um, like the neurotransmitters that a person has? If they have a higher level of cortisol response or a lower level, how does that connect with the individual's uh, docility or their aggressiveness? Well, the, um, what we think of as docility, uh, which is uh, reduced reactivity, it's, 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 it's willingness to put up with being insulted or having other individuals close to you or... Uh, maybe someone taking something away from you. Uh, this is all associated with low reactive aggression. And, and that's what is characteristic of um, humans as a species uh, compared to our close relatives, but also uh, of all domesticated animals. The feature of domesticated animals is that they have a very low propensity for reactive aggression. They're, they're pretty darn calm. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a, the really striking thing about them compared to, to wild animals. So it's reactive aggression that is down-regulated in humans and domesticated animals. Proactive aggression is uh, is variable. It, it's not necessarily down-regulated at all. And of course, in humans, it isn't because in humans, you know, we have a species that is tremendously capable of organizing itself into uh, carrying out a lot of proactive aggression, right? deliberate attacks, and that's what happens in wars, and it's what happens when people. Uh, uh, go into mass executions or uh, lynchings or all sorts of different contexts. Mm -hmm. So proactive aggression has got nothing to do with docility. It's it's reactive aggression only. Oh, I see. That makes sense. I noticed that I liked how in the book you describe the progression from different species of humans and why we outdid the prior ones even though we were weaker, our faces were not as strong, we had rounder faces, our features were not as built for power but we had ability to communicate and some features and then um, even for current species the wilder men reproduce faster than the civilized men who are more domesticated so there has to be an evolutionary support for that or else it wouldn't occur can you speak a little bit about how humans have progressed over the recent uh, let's say 100,000 or so years well I mean the very dramatic thing about the human species and something that's always been a puzzle for 
um, evolutionary biologists and anthropologists to understand is how is it that we are such incredibly good cooperators, particularly with individuals to whom we're not related. If, if we are related to each other uh, and the fact then we share some genes, then there's an easy evolutionary explanation for our being interested in each other and cooperating with each other, but not when we are unrelated. And yet humans are very good at cooperating with non-relatives. And the story in the book is of how uh, you can trace through uh, the evolution of human anatomy a reducing tendency for reactive aggression. So the story is that if you look 300,000 years ago, then uh, you see the first glimmerings of an evolutionary change in our ancestry that is away from a really heavy, robustly built skull with great big brow ridges and enormous wide face and projecting uh, uh, teeth and so on, well, projecting mouth full of big teeth. Uh, and instead, you start getting a, a, a slimmer face with reduced brow ridge, uh, the, uh, the face being retracted somewhat. Um, and, uh, and this increasing delicacy is associated in domesticated animals with reduced aggression, and it therefore seems to have been associated in us with reduced aggression. And that's what enabled us to become much better cooperators with each other, which probably accounts for the fact that even though we are a sort of relatively weak and defenseless uh, species compared to our ancestors, nevertheless, we did better than them. And cooperation just seems to be the obvious reason why we were so successful. Mm -hmm. That makes me think of a recent interview with Dr. Nicholas Christakis, who was also on the back of your book, Wonderful Individual. And um, in his book, he had a thing talking about how in a fluid environment, cooperators were more supported because they could reach out to other cooperators and they would be more successful. But if there was a fixed environment, which was limited, uh, the defectors would win out in that kind of game theory, which kind of makes uh, our current human species look like the more, like the next step in the progression, if you will. Now, uh, I was wondering, do you ever think about game theory related to um, this topic when you are doing research? Well, uh, a little bit. I mean, of course, game theory has been tremendously useful in trying to understand um, how it is that humans are able to overcome the natural tendency for selfishness to uh, erode and undermine tendencies for cooperation. You know, so, so uh, as you probably heard from uh, Nicholas Christakis, if you take small groups of people and you play uh, some kind of public goods game where individuals have the opportunity to invest in the group, which is good for everybody in the group, but at the same time you, you have an opportunity for individuals to take money out of the, um, the, the group benefits in a selfish way, then uh, in the ordinary arrangement, uh, you, you will find that cooperation breaks down because everybody is selfish because they want to maximize their own benefit. And that the way to solve this, this problem of game theory, this, this free riding problem, uh, is to have some kind of a punishment, some kind of uh, cooperative agreement among people that they will ostracize somebody who behaves badly, or it can be a sort of formal way where you take some money away from them because they have been selfish. And uh, so uh, these are these game theory um, uh, analyses are helpful in indicating how it is that you can overcome 
the cooperative, the, the tendency for cooperation to fall apart in the face of selfish tendencies to defect. In the case of, of um, the evolutionary understanding that I have of uh, human cooperation, there was a huge um, source of punishment which was promoting cooperation. And that was the tendency uh, that we see represented in mobile hunters and gatherers, small-scale societies today, to have a way to deal with the ultimate defectors. The ultimate defectors were the bullies, the men who used their personal physical strength to try and dominate everybody in the group, take other men's wives, uh, uh, beat up other men who challenged them, and so on. And how, in a world of, of um, sort of free people, um, with no prisons and no police, how do you deal with such a guy? And the answer is that the rest of the group gets together and really means the rest of the men, and, and they organize a, a capital punishment. They organize to kill him. And th so that's the ultimate punishment. And under those circumstances, evolutionarily, people learn that, okay, it's not such a great idea to be the kind of guy who might be ostracized, because you might be the kind of guy that end up being killed. And natural selection, I think, has favored the evolution of moral emotions that serve to protect each individual from the wrath of the group, from the anger of the group. And so it's the, it's the punishment that promotes cooperation uh, and in in small economic games, it's just people uh, coordinating against each other. But in in the real life of uh, difficult challenges of living on the African uh, continent, then it was people going all the way to execution. Mm -hmm. When I think about that, I think about it's sort of like humanity as a collective in a way of consciousness or one group, because if one tries to separate themselves completely from the pack, it's sort of like disregarding the collective, so the other elements will bring them back. And everybody who rises too much a little bit has a little fear of, wait a minute, am I disregarding? You have to still be somewhat connected like a web to the rest of the people in a way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, humans are such a networked species. And as you say, you know, the tall poppy or the, you know, the nail that sticks out just, just gets banged back again. Yeah, <laughs> right. And then... Uh, you had mentioned that capital punishment reduces societal aggressiveness by encouraging conformity. It makes me kind of think of like a freeway. If there's an area you can cut off people right before the on-ramp, then once in a while there will always be that person that just rolls in. But if they finally make like some sort of barrier, then that's it, and then it just works out. But it has to be implemented or else there will always be that. Uh, and then the only solution to that is a, a group of people responding to that. I kind of think that's kind of a... Okay, well, that sounds like a, a proper Californian metaphor. <laughs> yeah. The big freeway. It's more of a, yeah, that's true. It's more of a Los Angeles uh, scenario. Maybe in some areas that wouldn't even be uh, a relevant thing. Now, um, is, is society headed in more of a conformity or domesticated form at the current moment at a quicker rate, even? Oh, I think it's clear that um, uh, that society is uh, adding to the evolutionary um, pressures and, and, and directions by uh, developing systems which discourage reactive aggression all the more. So 
you know, we, we are nowadays quite horrified when somebody loses their temper and gets into a fight. Uh, it's, it's regarded as, as you know, totally improper, immoral uh, behavior. And of course, eventually people go to prison if they do it too much. Um, there are all sorts of uh, societal pressures, you know, from, from law to uh, just cultural norms that militate against people losing their temper. Uh, uh, children are pretty good at it, but it gets trained out of us. Uh, the better that a society is at controlling aggression, then the more peaceful it becomes. Uh, one of the world's most peaceful societies is uh, in Thailand, according to anthropologists, uh, certain areas of Thailand, uh, where the efforts to to train children out of their natural aggressiveness is particularly strong. So these are all cultural efforts that add to the evolutionary tendencies for us to have relatively low propensity for reactive aggression. And as documented by Steven Pinker in his wonderful book, um, The Better Angels of Our Nature, uh, it's very clear that if you look at all sorts of different measures of violence, they've been going down in the centuries. Uh, they've been going down in recent decades even. So you know, we're good. We're good at doing that. The problem is we're not so great about controlling proactive violence because wars continue and wars are mostly concerned with proactive violence. Mm. I like the distinction, yeah. One of them is being managed completely, but the other one, there's not really a set way currently to stop one or 10 or 100 individuals from going out and causing something from scratch. Yeah, I think it's way. really useful to to distinguish these two types because it, it really makes you understand that you know, why it is that some people can say, hey, we're just getting better. And other people can say, well, that's not true. You know, and it turns out they're talking about different things. Right. That's often on the Internet. You see two people talking and then a person that would come in with logic would say, you guys aren't talking about the same thing. So you can't ever actually. This is not the it, same it's thing. Very often the answer to a dispute. That's right. <laughs> this isn't the same thing. That's pretty good. Now, speaking of, you mentioned children, uh, you mentioned there's a window of time for socialization for animals after which they find it difficult to trust random individuals. Can you speak about that and the impacts of domestication on that window of time where after that they're not as able to just connect and trust as much? Yes, I mean, uh, it's really striking. In, I mean, I guess people know most, know most about this in dogs. And uh, uh, if, a, if a dog is not socialized to uh, humans... Uh, in, uh, I think it's the four to eight week period, something like that is, is the really critical one, um, then uh, they find it really hard to ever develop uh, comfortable relationships with humans in the future. And uh, you can see something like this with, uh, with children, you know, where one of the uh, very sad consequences of uh, people being uh, put into orphanages, uh, particularly of the sort of rather, you know, old-fashioned, rather almost cruel type, uh, classically in Romania, um, you end up with people who find it very difficult to adapt to, to society. So, uh, you know, there's nothing about an evolutionary analysis uh, that undermines the tremendous importance of social and cultural influences. It just provides the bedrock on which uh, the... Um, development of uh, an individual personality rests. Mm. That makes sense. There's always windows of times in life for different 
uh, elements. So I kind of I like to note those early on, and then for people connecting and partnership. One yeah. thing I like to look. At, go ahead. No, 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 I was just agreeing with you. That's fine. Right. Yeah. There's these little windows. Uh, one thing I always uh, like to look at is like the dopamine and serotonin. I sort of think of it societally. In a way, I sort of feel like uh, maybe 20, 30 years ago was a little bit more dopaminergic. And then now, I don't know, as, as maybe in the United States, it's more serotonin based and there's more like a calm. And it feels like the the music or the substances people are using is more like a continuous state, like a trance versus like 20 years ago or such. It was more like a punctuated equilibrium. Does anything about this resonate with something that might have been noticed as far as animals? Well, I don't know that, that that's uh, that's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to uh, encourage you to go too far in thinking about a real physiological change, you know. Right. But I can understand that as a as a metaphor for uh, how uh, there are a sort of different, I don't know, moral tenor uh, mm-hmm. in society uh, that is sort of somewhat similar to a. Um, I don't know, a calming versus a sort of siding, rewarding area. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's see, you're, you're thinking, uh, is there anything uh, in animals that is comparable? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I would just come back to thinking about the evolution of domestication. And um, although we know, you know, domestication is a really interesting study at the moment because uh, people are just uh, making all sorts of headway and getting much more involved in understanding about uh, domestication of animals. But even so, we still know relatively little about changes in the brain. Um, and this is going to be a fantastic area for study in the future. Uh, there are definite hints that you get systematic changes in the serotonergic system so that uh, there will be um, basically reduced risk-taking in domesticated animals uh, as you get either elevated levels of serotonin or elevated levels of serotonin responsiveness Mm -hmm. uh, in the the appropriate neurons. Um, but, But I think it's too early to make you know, strong generalizations. The, the reason I think this is all really interesting is because partly just the animals themselves are interesting, but also because the obvious implication of this uh, book that I've written is that um, humans will show parallel changes to what you see in domesticated animals. And this will be both in the brain itself uh, and in the genes uh, that uh, we have compared to our, um, call them our wild ancestors. So if you think about the relationship between a dog and a wolf being similar to the relationship between uh, us and our 300,000 year ago ancestors, uh, then uh, that gives all sorts of opportunities for testing ideas about um, parallel differences. And we don't know that much about our 300,000 year old ancestors, but the Neanderthals are probably pretty good stand-ins for them. And uh, so we do have some complete genomes from Neanderthals that will allow us to test whether or not those those humans who are clearly not showing the same, same signs of domestication as we 
Homo sapiens do, do they have differences from our genes in ways that mimic those between wolves and dogs or um, you know, any ancestral wild animal to its domesticated descendant? And the interesting hints that we're getting from the first analyses are, yes, that, that we, we, we do indeed see parallel changes. It's mm. going to be really fun to see how those develop. Right. If we ran into a human from 300,000 years ago, we'd probably have no chance against them one-on-one -on -one because we would be much, I guess, softer in a way at this time. Well, if you, if you take the a time machine idea and, and go off and meet someone from 300,000 years ago, uh, they might be slightly lower in height, but they would be very strong and very robust and, and would probably be very quick to respond to any kind of threat or insult. And I personally would not want to meet them <laughs> on a dark night at all. Right. One thing uh, connected to that is like when there's groups, um, I had read about that, the leader being removed. Have you noticed the impacts of when there's a chimpanzee group and the leaders... Uh, who are the strongest ones are removed and what that does to the group? Have you done anything like that? Well, uh, I study chimpanzees in the wild and I do not do experiments on them at all. Oh, okay. It's entirely observational. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and this is true for everybody who studies uh, chimps in the wild uh, or any of the apes in the wild because um, we have uh, an ethical stance uh, which is that uh, in addition to studying them, what we want to do is to... Um, uh, care for them uh, and conserve them. So there are no experiments uh, like that. However, mm -hmm. there are natural experiments in which uh, an alpha male may die. Uh, he might be uh, killed by a predator, uh, but more likely he might be killed by uh, other chimpanzees. So you're asking um, what happens socially? Uh, after mm -hmm. The impact uh, on the rest of the group, yeah. The, 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 the effect would tend to be that uh, there will be competition among others to be the next alpha. And what that means is uh, to be the next individual who is able to personally vanquish every other individual in the group that tries to fight him. So it's not a um, very sophisticated form of, of interaction. You know, this is uh, what, what people would think of as a, a nasty, brutish, behavior and it is you know that's that's what alpha males do they they just beat up on each other and and one of them emerges victorious well in the process of fighting in the process of competition by which uh, the beta and the gamma males say are are competing to be the alpha there's a knock-on effect of aggression and you will find typically that uh, the rate of of aggression just the rate at which uh, individuals are getting involved in physical fights and chases uh, increases by doubling uh, during a period when there is a, a fight for the top. Mm. So everybody suffers. There's a, you know, one of the fascinating things about fighting is that fighting promotes fighting. Right. And, and it, it takes time for it to settle down. Mm -hmm. I noticed that I saw it one time in this one graph, like, remove the leader, and then there's a period of just confusion, all kinds of activity, more so than normal, because it's the, like, that timing thing again, the opportunity for one or two to rise to the leadership. And then it's sort of like a management 
uh, after that there doesn't need to be fighting because now the everybody's internal state of what things are is now okay this is the hierarchy and it's set. Yeah. yeah once once there's a hierarchy then uh, uh, individuals tend to to conform to it because they know that if they don't uh, they will be uh, the subject of you know they'll be victims of some one of the higher members of the hierarchy attacking them mm -hmm. this is true one thing i noticed as far as people working together in some form you talked about uh, Charles Darwin and his concept of parochial altruism, people uh, having intra-group cooperation and aggression without expectations of future returns. Is this an ideal way to work? Can you speak about that? Well, Darwin mused about the possibility that the reason that um, people are very good at cooperating is because uh, groups in the past in which individuals cooperated well were successful uh, in terms of the uh, competition against other groups. And that could have been in war, or it could have been just that they were in incredibly good at exploiting their environment, and so they, they got lots of food and, and uh, had lots of babies that survived very well, that sort of thing. Anyway, the essential point was um, the idea that uh, individuals might cooperate because of the effects at the group level, even when at the individual level, uh, their cooperation might be self-sacrificial. That, that's what you mean by parochial altruism, mm -hmm. where you're altruistic to people in your parish, that, uh, that refers to the word parochial, um, but uh, the effect is uh, that everybody benefits at the level of the group. And nowadays, that does not seem to be a viable mechanism uh, for understanding why people are altruistic, and the, the fundamental reason is that um, within groups, uh, anyone who is altruistic while others are selfish will ultimately lose out to the ones who are selfish. And there will always be a tendency for natural selection to favor those individuals who take advantage of the altruistic ones and get their own benefits that way. And so, you know, um, what this, uh, the goodness paradox, my, my book, uh, shows is that uh, you don't need that mechanism to understand why it is that people have evolved to become so interested in investing in the group as a whole. And the reason ultimately is self-protection. It's protection from being viewed as somebody who is selfish, given a world in which the selfish individuals are, become the victims of a group consensus. And that group consensus is, hey, you're acting selfishly. We don't like you in this group. Get out of here or we will kill you. And that all is a consequence of something that is totally special about our species and only our species. And that is the ability to talk about these things and develop shared ideas about what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that that's our specialty, our ability to pass on communication. Just one little step more than other species. This is a wonderful thing. That's right. Yeah, that's the paradox there. Now, in relation, I wanted to add in this one element beyond the book, you have also written about cooking, which is completely unrelated. I thought I'd bring that in. Can you tell us a little bit about cooking and how that is relevant in some form? Well, uh, cooking is just like language is another incredibly um, special feature of humans. Uh, you know, other species cooks their food. And um, it People used to think about this as some sort of rather nice luxury that just gives us the opportunity to have 
good flavors in our food and so on, but it didn't make any, any sort of special difference. But uh, it turns out that cooking really does make a huge difference. And um, the reason it is so important is that it increases the amount of energy that we get out of our food. That's the first reason. And uh, th what that means is that uh, we uh. survive and reproduce better on a given diet than any other animal does. So uh, we have a lot of uh, sort of direct biological benefit. And the second reason is that um, it uh, saves us an enormous amount of time because if we eat our food raw, we would be spending uh, at least six hours a day simply moving our jaws up and down, chewing our food. Whereas because we cook, uh, it doesn't matter whether we're living in um, as hunters and gatherers or, or as uh, people living in Trump Tower. Uh, we are nevertheless uh, eating for less than one hour a day. And so we save tremendous amount of time and that enables us to make tools and go hunting and uh, look after our children and uh, write poetry uh, and dance and all sorts of stuff that other animals can't spend the time doing. Now, the big picture about cooking is this, that, um, that we are a species adapted to the benefits of eating our food cooked. And we know this because if you put people on a raw food diet, then uh, even under the ideal conditions, women uh, are reproductively compromised. That is to say that the average woman living on even a raw food diet in an urban environment where she's got access to the best kinds of foods all year, 50% of the women under those conditions uh, stop menstruating altogether. They cannot have a baby. Uh, and that's because we're not adapted to eating raw food because our guts are different from the guts of our close relatives. We have uh, relatively short and ineffective intestines. It's great to have those shortened intestines because it means that we don't have to carry around a great big gut like a gorilla does. Uh, instead, we can have nice tight bodies and um, we can run and walk and go for long distances and, and so on. And it saves us the energy of, of feeding those guts so we can put energy into our brains instead and let our brains go big, which is what happened. And, and when did all this happen? Uh, you know, and, and anthropologists have not found the critical evidence that supports the idea that I think is right. Uh, but um, for what it's worth, I think all the biological evidence points to this happening about two million years ago with the evolution of the genus Homo, which is our, you know, our family of um, of, of uh, species. Uh, Homo erectus emerged uh, just this side of two million years ago, and that's almost certainly when cooking began. Huh. That's interesting. I didn't think about some of those details about cooking, and then maybe that's our advantages got us a bigger brain and bigger, and then the prefrontal cortex, and we got to progress. What would you say? I don't know. It's hard to throw out, but if what percentage of our evolution is based on maybe cooking as a differentiator, just for our species? Is that? Well, I I think that the biological evidence points to cooking uh, emerging and creating uh, the genus Homo, which is you know super characteristic of us. I mean, we Homo sapiens is the latest species, mm -hmm. uh, but Homo erectus uh, emerging almost two million years ago. Uh, that's the first species that could walk down Main Street and go into a store and take clothes off the peg and wear them. Right. Um, 
you know, maybe some sort of slight adjustment for how muscular they were. But 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 the basic size and shape of, uh, of, a, of a contemporary human. Right. And ever since then, I think uh, humans have been uh, using fire, uh, enabling us to sleep on the ground where we could protect ourselves at night by the fact of having a fire um, and and cooking our food and keeping warm and and destroying the poisons in our food and all that sort of stuff. So how much of our evolution, you know, I think the only way you can talk about it is in terms of time. I think, you know, for two million years, we've been special because we've controlled fire. Hmm. That's a separator right there. The thing that always interests me about such things is I like to understand the path. I never was so too inclined with history in history books, but then I really am inclined towards, like, uh, this change caused this. There's there's not so much variety or surprise over time as we start to figure out, oh, this led to this, or people with high dopaminergic states were more likely to travel, or everything was sort of already mapped out along the way. It's nice to see uh, the details that are left out of most of history over time being added back to history. I like that feature. Yeah. The, uh, uh, I mean, just picking up on that. Mm-hmm. We know at some time that cooking began, that humans started cooking. And, and so just thinking about your point about filling in the details, I think an interesting way to ask this question about cooking uh, is, um, is, is when it started, because we know that it had huge effects. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason, you know, one of the reasons that I think that it's um, almost certain that it it emerged around two million years ago, not later when we first get the strong evidence of the use of fire, which is sort of between half a million and one million years ago. I don't think it happened then because nothing happened in human evolution then. Oh. You know, human evolution was just sort of trucking along, uh, just small things happening, uh, you know, brain getting a little bit bigger and uh, maybe size going up and down, that sort of thing. But but basically, you've got, you know, you're just humans just barreling along that. And so the idea that this hugely important influence kind of started then without having an impact on the evolutionary anatomy of our ancestors seems too strange. So right. I, I, I think that that if you're looking for these big cause-effect relationships, right. then it's really fun to tie them into what we know about the evolutionary changes that went on. Mm-hmm. It's cool. It's not always like right that minute. But it's sort of like a lagging indicator of what was needed at the time and what progressed forward. I like that feature. If you had to describe in one way, I always like to add this in, a message that you would um, describe to all people on the planet with a megaphone about... Uh, what your studies have taught you, what would be a like a sentence or two you would tell all people about humans? Well, I think a lot of people feel very um, uh, forced to uh, think about biology and culture uh, as rather separate things. And um, everybody knows that there is uh, tremendous cultural flexibility in, in humans. You know, we grow up in different places, we behave in many different ways. Um, so that means that they feel, feel very nervous about the notion that those are really uh, important biological inputs because they feel as though in order to understand humans as biological creatures, that pushes them into thinking that uh, 
there's a sort of biological determinist view which seems in conflict with the evident cultural flexibility. Mm-hmm. So what I would say in my megaphone is don't think that because you uh, are understanding humans as a creature of evolution that this commits you to a view of biological determinism. It doesn't. But on the other hand, I would also say that uh, it is clear that there are some tendencies in the human species that persist and are repeatedly shown uh, across all sorts of different times and different places in the world, and different cultures. And these are things like the constant tendency for male coalitions to emerge and uh, use violence in the uh, service of their own interests, or the tendency for uh, men to try and sexually coerce women uh, to uh, their own male selfish advantage. And these are, they're not biologically determinist in the sense that they have to happen, but they are biologically uh, strong influences. And we should know more about them in order to be able to fight against them. Because if you do know about them, and if you do want to fight against them, then you can control them. That makes sense. Seeing the patterns that would take place most likely. This is wonderful. That's a clear message about people. I would like to say... I am glad to have had you on this wonderful episode, number 233 of the show. Thank you for being on it. Thank you, Alan. Very, very nice questions. It was fun to talk to you. Wonderful. And we are out. <laughs>